you're going to feel strikes sooner and better. And also just having that elasticity to it, you, you have better feel to it. And also if you're fishing smaller flies, you have a little bit of a cushion when you set the hook. You know, obviously you're still setting it hard enough to drive the hook. Which leads me to my next question, which is probably the most important question of this whole podcast. Do you wear a flat brim hat or do you wear like a dad hat? Oh, man. Three, two. And this isn't necessarily uncommon. You just don't hear about it as much. You're throwing a streamers with a Euro rod. Yeah. So it, it, it's not a common thing. It's not like if I'm going to go out and streamer fish all day, it's not my number one rig setup. But if I'm out there fishing and I don't know what the heck I'm going to do with my day, all options are on the table. That's really what it is. <laughs> <laughs> like when, when we were fishing uh, around the time when you were here or in Atlanta, mm -hmm. we were fishing streamers and sinking lines, light flies, doing that mm -hmm. whole thing and dredging every once in a while with something heavy, but, yeah. but you're not, you're not doing that with a Euro rod. No, no. I'm usually using a, a pretty well weighted streamer just cause I mean, you don't have line to load and cast with. It's all based off tension. It's almost like throwing a lure, you know, on a spin rod. It really is, much. isn't it? It's the same idea. <laughs> just spin fishing with a fly rod, really. Yeah, it really kind of is, isn't it? I haven't thought about that, but it really makes sense. So what kind of what kind of streamers are you using? Are they like heavy sinking? Yeah, I mean, I use all sorts of stuff: dungeons, peanut envies, all kind of the classic stuff, really. I mean, as far as as far as big streamers go, I, it's hard for me to go wrong with a peanut envy. I really like those. Yeah, it's a great fly. Fish dungeons all the time. Smaller flies, favorites, a conehead zuddler mm. caught a lot of great fish on those. Yeah, so something that breaks the surface breaks yeah. the water surface and gets down fairly quick you got lead on them or they uh, yeah yeah i mean i, I time with tungsten cone heads lots of lead all that kind of stuff i like fishing faster water for the most part and it just gets down better it's almost like throwing a baseball in there isn't it yeah it splashes and they know it they're uh they're either running quick to eat it or running quick to get the hell out of there <laughs> <laughs> so either way you see fish so true so what water type i guess i should say what water types do you you seek out when you're doing that does it matter for the streamers yeah no nah, it doesn't matter too much i mean i i really like fishing streamers in faster water especially with the euro rod because i mean one thing i don't think you can do well with the standard setup that maybe the euro rod does give you an advantage is streamer fishing kind of like pocket water you know stuff like that where you know it's just flies swim weird through it if you fish it on a floating or sinking line you know you get all these weird currents makes your fly goes all sorts of crazy directions but whereas if you kind of if you're an epic kind of high stick it man you can kind of you can let it fall wherever you want you can let it sink and then kind of twitch it exactly where you want through you're holding your line over the water kind of in a tight lining kind of fashion it works pretty well it's fun you can kind of hit those little spots so in a pocket really you could really fish that little pocket and keep it in there for a little bit longer could exactly you? you get a little more residence time in there a little more time for reaction yeah it works if you put a stake in front of my face long enough i'm going to eventually exactly take a bite of it, right? the temptation exactly. is just unreal <laughs> What about your tippets when you're doing that? Is that a little, I guess you use a little bit heavier maybe? Yeah, I, you know, my, my standard is typically 2X. I like 2X pretty much never go away from it. 2X fluoro, usually uh, tie about five feet off from my cider and that's enough. 
works you know you know you know it's like with a sync line you don't need a whole long leader per se you know yeah right just enough but 2x is typically my go-to really no matter what size streamer i'm fishing because i mean i fish some heavier stuff sometimes but it just helps to get down better with that thinner line yeah faster the better yeah and you know with a, especially with a euro rod you're not setting too hard that you're as worried about breaking the line off a hook yeah right <laughs> yeah there's plenty of give in a euro rod <laughs> oh Well, hey, welcome into Southeastern Fly, uh, and this episode is about Euro-nymphing, high-sticking, tight-line-nymphing. Uh, you can find us at southeasternfly.com. You can find us on Instagram. Find us on Facebook. You can find us on our... We've got a Facebook group called Podcast by Southeastern Fly. Today, our guest is a guy that I have known uh, since 2009 when he was 13 years old. He and his dad first stepped on my boat. I guess it was August of 2009. And from there, from 2009 to 2013, he had quite a ride there. So I guess you had first really kind of started fishing 2008, 2009, Mm -hmm. uh, and your dad booked a trip on the on southeastern fly on the boat and i remember we went to the elk had a great day in the morning a little slow in the afternoon but the morning was freaking on fire Mm -hmm. it was it was awesome lots of fish some nice fish thrown in there as well from there you started really fishing from what i could tell pretty much every day so we fished on a friday or saturday your dad called on monday and said hey can you help me set up a boat just like yours (laughs) yeah he bought a drip boat not soon after man I think we had it by mid-September 2009. So just a little bit, month and a half, something like that. The only thing, the only thing different was it was a little lower profile. Yeah, it was low profile. That's what it was. Yeah, yep. but pretty much everything else was the same. It was a hide and all that. So as you started fishing, you started getting into competition angling, and that I think is is where I said, all right, if I if I want to know anything about high sticking, tight line nymphing, euro nymphing, that sort of thing, then then I I'm, I need to be asking Garrett. <laughs> so he's from the ATL, living now. And fishing in Colorado. Let's welcome to the podcast Garrett Gresham. Garrett, thanks for stopping by Southeastern Fly. Yeah, absolutely. Glad you uh, glad you invited me on. We talked a little bit about you throwing streamer on Euro rods, and that's not entirely uncommon, but it's a little bit different. It's different. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure somebody's out there saying, well, I do that all the time, yeah. which is fine. If it's productive and you enjoy it, or if you just enjoy it and it's not productive, I don't know that that really matters. If you enjoy it, that's the big thing. If it's productive for you, all the better. Yeah. So let's let's talk about your rod setup. Yeah, sure. Let's talk about that. I want to talk about and what I mean by rod setup is I want to talk rod, reel, cider, leader, tippets, terminal tackle, that sort of thing. Sure. Yeah. Let's stop at the fly and we'll talk about flies later. Yeah. Flies will come later. What lengths and, and weights and that sort of thing, what types of rods do you have? As far as Euro rods go, all of mine are anywhere between 10 and 11 foot. I've got a 10 foot, I've got two 10 sixes, and I've got an 11 foot. And really, I use them relatively interchangeably. Sometimes the longer rods work better on bigger water. Sometimes it's just a flavor of the day and I'm just picking up what I want to fish, you know, if it's something I haven't fished in a while. But I always like kind of oversizing my reels. I think the most the most important part of it is having a reel that balances really well in your hand. Now, so wherever you find your hand sitting on your grip, you just want that weight to be really, really finely balanced. Because when you're urine, you're, you're holding your arm up a lot more than you would you know, normally fly fishing, indicator fishing, you know, things of that nature. So over the course of a day, that that little bit of extra effort you're putting forth just it'll help you go a bit longer just because your arm won't get as tired. You won't blow it out early. As far as leaders go, uh, I really like to keep it pretty simple. I don't like a whole lot of knots, my leaders. Um, and I like thinner leaders. So I think you get a little bit better sensitivity with it. My typical leader runs, uh, I've got 
I'll run about 10 foot of 15 pound maxima. Then I'll do about 15 foot of 10 pound maxima. Do that to about three foot of a 2X cider. I really like the Umpqua cider material. It's good stuff. Go to my tippet and there we are. You know, my tippet off my cider is usually about five feet. And I'll, uh, I'll, I'll typically fish two flies. I don't get into fishing three flies or anything like that. It's just too much opportunity for tangles. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, it can be a real mess. I mean, you fish a dry double dropper, you're fishing three nymphs, you're asking, uh, you're asking for trouble sometimes. But, you know, some people like it and it works for them. So that's cool. Uh, as far as tags go and fly spacing, I really, I keep it probably between 20 inches, 20 to 30 inches, uh, depending on the water I'm fishing. You know, if you've got your flies further apart, you got more tippet between them, kind of acts as a parachute can help you keep your flies shallower if you're fishing that kind of water. But if you really need to get down, having your flies closer, less resistance getting down. So kind of the first things I'm thinking about there. We're going we're gonna to back up sure. to, you have different lengths of rods and you said that you might fish a, a longer rod in bigger water, but you might not. So I get yeah. that. But let's talk about the reels because I've got a different philosophy on reels. And yep. this kind of goes into our ergonomic discussion that we're going to get in later, but I'm all about light. I understand the balance that you're talking about and all that, but holding my arm arm up and you can't see it out there but holding your arm up all day long mm-hmm. you know whereas if you're nymphing you can with the indicator or even a dry a lot of times you can just drop the rod and, right. and kind of get comfortable you know kind of like a quarterback might be comfortable under a, a center uh and streamers same thing you know I, everybody for the most part strip streamers you know with the rod tip down toward or in the water so i go with that theory of maybe a little lighter is better because i can last longer you know mm-hmm. I can, at the end of the day so i was gonna say i don't fish all day but that's i know probably, you do <laughs> that's probably a lie uh, <laughs> but but as I as if I'm going to fish all day, holding my arm up all day long, that's where I'm thinking maybe lighter is better for me. Not that there's a hard and fast rule here because I don't believe there is. But what you're saying is you you're looking for balance. Exactly. Yeah. So I think, and it, it depends on how you hold the rod, I guess. You know, and, and everyone's going to find the way that works best for them. So when I'm holding a rod, if I have a rod that's not well balanced, I'll really start to get some stress in my forearm. I think either way, you're holding a rod up all day, you're going to get some strain in your shoulder. And I can see where you're saying, you know, lighter might be a little better for that. But I think me personally, I'll start feeling some strain in my uh, forearm a lot quicker than I will on my shoulder. And that's, that's mainly due to if I have a front heavy rod with the way I just kind of hold it and position it. So that goes kind of back to what I was talking about rods just the other day, actually, with Tate Cunningham, Moonshine, and he yeah. was talking about swing weight. And all that weight out there on the tip of the rod, he, yep. he likened it to a potato and it's a whole different discussion, but I can understand that, you know, that heavy weight out there and just constantly that bobbing up and down. I think yep. my light, part of my lightness is I've got a little bit of tear from rowing in my rotator cuff. Sure. I guess I'm probably more, probably more sensitive to that than, than maybe somebody that doesn't. And another part of it too is, uh, where I think it, it's a little beneficial to have the rod a little back heavy weight further towards the reel is when you're casting, you know, you're casting a longer rod. Your center of this, the rod center of mass is further out. So it, it takes a little bit more force moving it back and forth. So I think that's another part where if you keep your weight a little more towards you, just the ease of casting is a bit easier as well. Right. Whatever you're comfortable with is what really matters. Exactly. And it's going to be different for everyone. You know, yeah. it really is. Staying more comfortable for a longer period of time. Staying on point, you know, being able to focus and not thinking, man, I'm tired. I want to sit down, <laughs> it, you know, toward the end of the day is, 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 
for the first two or three hours, anybody, you can fish pretty much anything you want, but as time goes on, that's where it really starts making a difference. Like if we're, we're doing a Euro trip or something like that, I'll notice people like right before lunch, their rod tip's not horizontal or they got their rod tip up in the air like they're fishing, you know, a spinning rod or something. And they just... You can just tell the energy level's dropping. <laughs> so you, you're talking down, so rod, reel... We've talked about that, mm-hmm. but your cider, you're talking about some kind of cider material that's a little better? Yeah, I really like uh, I really like Umpwa's uh, cider material they have. It comes in kind of multicolors, makes it really easy to see. I also like amnesia. I think a good eight to six pound amnesia, pretty great, especially in lower conditions. I've noticed that the Umpwa cider, I, I don't think I can see it as well in low light conditions, but both of those work pretty well. The biggest thing for me, just with my leader is, uh, and I don't, I don't know how many other people out there do it. I heard this tip a long time ago, but boiling leaders is uh it's it's really helpful so what that does for you 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 take your whole leader i'm talking you know i i described about a 25 foot setup take the whole thing you put it in a pot of boiling water for about eight ten minutes it's going to kind of become a tangled mess in there you can wind it around whatever stuff and no matter what you do it's going to become a, a bit of a, a rat's nest by the time you pull it out but once you do <laughs> once you do you kind of pull it through your hand real tight you know kind of straighten that line back out where you're going to realize is your leader now has a bit of elasticity to it. There's some stretch to it. And what that does is first, it's going to keep your line straighter for longer as you keep it on the reel. Because a big part of your nipping is having good contact with your flies. You keep that line straight, you have less slack, you're going to feel strike sooner and better. And also just having that elasticity to it, you you have better feel to it. And also if you're fishing smaller flies, you have a little bit of a cushion when you set the hook. You know, obviously you're still setting it hard enough to drive the hook, but if you're fishing some light flies where it's real easy to pull something out of a fish's mouth, it, it kind of acts as a shock absorber and it's a pretty useful tactic. So that's a little different than these folks that are wrapping their leader around a dowel and boiling it so that they can make that indicator yeah exactly that's uh that's what they call a curly cue it's kind of the same idea you take your cider material you wrap it all around like a pencil or something like that you throw it in boiling water for like 10 minutes like i said and you throw it in the freezer for a while overnight whatever i don't know what the exact time is you cool it down and what that's going to cause is going to cause that line to just look just like a spring and uh you know that that can be a good cider material for people it uh it makes the take a lot more visual but the other part to that too is if you're fishing in some case where you either don't want to or can't use a uh, an indicator, you can actually throw some uh, like dry fly lubricant or I mean grease on it, and you can almost fish it like an indicator and it'll float for you. So you can kind of suspend a couple small nymphs. So kind of a little bit of a workaround to an indicator almost. But I typically prefer the straight cider just because I think you have better uh, you have better feel with it. It's easier to cast. Doesn't catch wind as much when you're drifting it. I just I personally think it's a, a better option, and I don't see nearly as many people using the uh, the curly cue. When you were in competition in 2013, mm-hmm. uh, you went to the National Fly Fishing Championship in Basalt. And finished second, I think. Did you finish second? Is that right? Oh, yeah. Is that something where you would use something like that curlicue or would they not let you? No, you could. You absolutely could. That would have been kind of a workaround to not being able to use an indicator. But honestly, what, what most people who are in those competitions where indicators weren't allowed, what they would use is just a dry dropper system. A lot of times that works better, especially if you're fishing skinnier, smaller water. It's, it's more stealthy. Uh, obviously, you can catch fish on the dry, but that would typically be the workaround for bigger, deeper water. If it was long cast, you you might see someone do that, but it wasn't that common of a tactic. I'd heard about that several years ago. I've never tried that. Trying not to get into that such technical stuff, <laughs> but I mean, I can see where it be it would be useful in some instances, and I can see where it'd just be a complete pain too. But I like your idea of boiling it 
boiling a liter to get, you know, to get it the way you want it, whatever that looks like. Pretty cool. I mean, I swear it feels different when you're casting huh. it. It really does. You can feel it. Okay. Unfortunately, I might have to try it now. <laughs> it's an excuse to go fish. Yeah, that's what I need. Another excuse to get on the river. Yeah. <laughs> And we talked a little bit about ergonomics. What are some of the things that you do to keep yourself comfortable? Well, let me back up. I guess I should say one of the one of the main things that I see has nothing to do with rods, reels, terminal tackle, flies, anything. One of the things that I see that people need to do more is drink more water. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I guess out there it really matters. In Atlanta, it matters for a different reason. Yeah, you're sweating profusely. Right? <laughs> yes yes and then you get out there to to colorado or wherever yeah. and then you have altitude it's a totally different problem but it's but it's it results in the same that you're dehydrated totally right so that would be my thing if, to keep people comfortable keep some water in them you know that and eating too i mean how many times do you do you get to a river you're excited you've had a great morning you're fishing you just decide to fish through lunch all of a sudden come two three o'clock your blood sugar levels are dropping you're feeling groggy and you're kind of done you end up wimping out before you hit the evening hatch same deal right yeah it is it's the same thing isn't it yeah so i think bringing snacks taking care of yourself is important trying to stay in decent shape if you can nobody would believe that you have to be in, in decent shape to to fly fish and you don't for an hour but if you're gonna be out all day i mean think you know it, it's funny what i think back is to being a kid in church you know uh i grew up catholic and you know they'd, they'd sing the songs everyone would stand up you'd stand there four or five minutes and be like man i'm kind of tired and i'm ready to sit back down right but think about it you're yes. out fly fishing you're on your feet all day i mean all day yeah you're, you're waiting across slippery rocks bouncing in my case falling quite a bit you know it's it's a whole thing <laughs> you know walking miles you know it, it takes a it takes a toll on your body it really does more than the average person would think i went out there the first time i went out there i went out there with uh with a friend of mine david knapp i, I don't know if you probably know david He's uh, he guides up in the Smokies mm -hmm. now. He guides on the on the Caney in the Clinch. But he took me out there in one of the places. So we stayed over in Almont and fished the Taylor, yep. fished uh, the East River, and whatever the one that that makes. What Gunnison. is that? The Gunnison. We fished the, the Gunnison as well. And when we came back, he was living north of Denver, and I can't remember the name of the town. But we came back and we stopped somewhere around South Park and fished the Platte, mm -hmm. North Platte, South Platte, whatever that yep. was. And I just remember walking to the river and being tired. Uh, it'd been a long week and with altitude and just thinking that, man, are we ever going to, it wasn't that far, but yeah. I was thinking, are we, in, are we ever going to get to this? I mean, I've seen it for, for 10 minutes here. I'm still walking, <laughs> you know, are we still, are we ever going to get there? Then when we got there, we, you know, we were ready to fish and all that, but even getting to the river sometimes is, is oh, yeah. kind of a backbreaker or, yeah. you know, then you, then you spend three, four hours, five hours, six hours on your feet, like you said, mm -hmm. and it's, it's a deal. And you start getting into backcountry fly fishing too. I mean, man, you can really exert yourself. Every place you fish is not like, I'm going to stop the car and jump out and, you know, walk 20 feet and I'm there, especially not out there. Mm -hmm. it, it can, you can get into some real treks. So what about holding the rod? Are you holding the rod level? Are you kind of like holding the tip down a little bit? So I think as far as, as far as rod angles, uh, it's honestly to me a more important part of presentation than it is the ergonomics. So one thing you really got to watch when you're, when you're casting and you're doing your drift is your, you, they call it your tippet angle. So obviously you look at the angle your line's making with the water. You have a shallower angle, your flies are staying higher in the water. If you're fishing shallower water, that's how you want to be. When you do that, Usually you keep your kind of rod turned off to the side, tip lower. Whereas you need to get your flies down quick. You have your uh, rod tip up high. Your leader is going to have a real sharp angle to the water, less resistance against it. Your flies are going to sink. Really, as far as those go, 
a lot of that rod angle changes in my wrist. I kind of typically keep about the same arm position. But so a lot of that uh, movement throughout my drift is just straight up in my wrist. Okay, we're going to go back and dissect what you just said because I got sure. I got glassy-eyed about halfway through it. <laughs> Sorry. So start over, but stop at each point. You're talking about you're fishing shallower water. Yeah. Where's my rod tip? So if I'm fishing shallower water, my rod tip's lower and probably a little bit further back. So you're, you're casting, you're keeping your rod lower, flies hit the water, you pick up your slack, you get it to where you have just enough tension that you can track your flies and you keep that rod tip real low. Doing that's going to keep that nice shallow angle with your flies. It's going to keep your flies higher in the water. So where's my tip in, re- in relation to the flies as upstream or downstream? Stream. Tip is going to be downstream. Always keep your rod tip downstream. I can't think of a single single situation where having your rod tip upstream is good unless you're following it around like an eddy or something like that. Somebody out there has been fishing for a little bit and they've been trying to figure that piece out is why I asked sure. that, that way. Yeah. I mean, there's there are thousands of videos online. Yeah. So I encourage somebody to go out there and watch those. Don't watch all thousand because <laughs> it'll probably confuse you. But pick out somebody that's got that's that that you're comfortable with watching and just watch some of their videos and see how they're doing it. Cause there's a lot of on stream stuff and there's a lot of off stream, you know, setting up your rods and all that. So that's shallower water. Yeah. Let's talk about as the water starts getting deeper. So your water starts getting deeper. It's, it's the exact opposite. You're trying to keep that rod tip a little higher. So you're going to cast and really, I don't, I don't typically ever let my rod tip get more than probably, I usually keep it about pretty, uh, pretty perpendicular with, with me you know i don't really let it get up or downstream with me uh, i kind of keep it pretty similarly when my flies are drifting towards me i'm usually keeping the rod and it's pretty much in the same spot and stripping my line as it comes towards me then once my flies get even with me i will start to kind of make a sweeping motion downstream but so if i'm fishing deeper water i'm casting i'm giving the flies you know about a second to kind of start to sink I'm picking my line up off the water and holding that rod tip high Hold it about even with me and kind of like what I said, once your flies get about even with you, then start tracking them back downstream. I I truly believe that you get a lot better drift if your first half of it, while your flies are working your way back to you, you control the line tension by pulling the fly line or leader through your hand and then the back half of it, just following it through. So a couple of things that I've seen with, with people that are really good, they're like wrapping that that line around their fingers as they're stripping. They're not doing those long strips like you with the streamer. Right. They're right. like wrapping, wrapping, real small mm-hmm. movements, but a lot of them, obviously, yep. to, to make sure that they keep that, that line at just the right tension. Exactly. One of the things that Charity Rudder said back in uh, in our Wisdom of the, from the Guides episode for the Smoky Mountains, she made a point, and it was a great point. I thought it was an excellent point. Mm-hmm. She said, high sticking is not dragging your flies. It's not that. It's like a real good presentation and just letting them get in there and really work yeah i like to say let the flies get in there and kind of hunt down the fish for you yeah keep them in that zone as long as you can don't pull them don't drag them out it's like you're almost trying to put them in a zero gravity environment that makes sense you're doing just enough to offset the weight of them sinking i mean that's all it is and that works in a lot of gosh a ton of different different types of water so you've hit that that shallower faster moving water and then you've hit that deep water i watched a guy actually at the elk right off the right off the gravel bar which mm-hmm. i know that i know that garrett and i know what the elk is in, in that type of water but this is some super super slow moving water and i watched him catch i don't know he probably catch caught six or eight fish by the time i got the boat off the trailer yeah he's a fairly new angler he wasn't brand new he was ripping them ripping some lips to, yep. as they say <laughs> and i was what of course you know he caught a couple of decent fish within those 
fished he caught when I was pushing the boat off, which got got my attention. Uh, that was when that was I think the first time, and I said, all right, there really is something to this because sure. I, I had heard uh, that people that do uh, fish competition they like this type of fishing because of the numbers. Mm-hmm. So the number of fish really makes a difference because uh, so. Talk, talk to us just a second, and I don't want to spend a ton of time on this. How do they judge that uh, a competition? What, what's the score? How do I score points? All right. So your, your score is essentially uh, what they'll do. They'll set up a minimum size fish that counts. So you catch a fish. There's an automatic number of what they call fish points that you get for it. Then for every centimeter over that uh, minimum length, you get additional points towards it. Where you're talking about why it's really favored by competition anglers is uh, the number of points, you, and I can't remember the exact numbers off the top of my head, but the number of points you get for just catching a fish typically outweighs the number of points it takes or you get, you know, as you catch bigger fish. If you can catch two small fish back to back versus, you know, one decent sized fish in the same amount of time, you're better off catching the two smaller fish. So you get a standard set of points just for a fish, and then there's kind of additional points per centimeter over the minimum size length. And then throughout your time session, uh, you know, the total sum of those points, you compare them to everyone else fishing the river at the same time as you. And then they score it, uh, you know, first through however many people you got fishing at the same time. And then throughout the whole competition or the whole competition, you add up the number of what they call placing points. And that essentially decides who who wins it. So if it's one point per, fi- per fish and you can catch two fish in... 10 minutes versus one you've got twice the number of points yep, essentially then you start you start stacking on centimeters yep. which i don't measure fish in centimeters <laughs> i know <laughs> which leads me to my next sure. question which is probably the most important question of this whole podcast do you wear a flat brim hat or do you wear like a dad hat? oh man i don't wear flat brim hats man i don't like good in a flat brim hat i don't like them and i'm my style i knew there was something good about you <laughs> good and wholesome <laughs> no i can't do that one <laughs> Somebody out there saying, "Hey, I wear a flat brim hat," and that's a joke. Hey man, so don't, teach their own. please, please don't. Whatever makes you happy. Yeah, please don't send an email. <laughs> <laughs> yes, whatever makes you happy, and please don't send an email. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about getting the right drift, and you touched on that mm-hmm. for for shallow water and deeper water. And I appreciate you you giving good good feedback here because I think people that listen to these, some people are proficient and they just listen to it to pass the time and and have fun and pick it apart and that sort of yep. thing. But I think that there's a whole other side of that, of the listener out there that they're seeking information on certain topics. And they may be listening to this, you know, in 2021. And they may wait and listen to it in 2023 when they get to that stage in their fly fishing pastime yeah. or whatever we want to call it. And they'll come back to this. So I appreciate you giving good feedback because that presentation really doesn't change a ton Mm -mm. you know flies will change rods will definitely change reels will change lines will certainly change um as we go through the years but what's probably the number one tip that you could give somebody that let's let's talk to the person that is just starting to euro nymph high stick tight line nymph uh, up to that intermediate person so the person in competition 
they may or may not listen to this and if they do there's a really good chance if they've been doing it for a while they probably already can answer the questions before i can ask sure. so let's focus back on these folks that are trying to learn more what's the number one tip to be successful for presentation the number one tip is to is to really you know you're sitting there watching your cider i think the number one thing for me is to look past your cider try to really really understand what your flies are doing as they're going through the water when you're looking at a when you're looking at a stream you have all these different currents going on all these different depth changes and whatnot and the the best part about euro nymphing that you don't get with indicator fishing that you don't get with dry dropper fishing is by raising or lowering your rod tip you have the opportunity to adapt where your flies are sitting in the column throughout your drift and that's that's a huge advantage to you you know you have so many contour changes but i think the number one thing is to first off you know, you got to have flies that are getting down to where you can't control the depth, but really, really think about where your flies are doing, what your flies are doing and what movements they may or may not be making. If you have too much slack in your cider, your flies are probably sinking. It's not looking natural. If you're pulling too hard, your flies are dragging through the water. It's not looking natural. Kind of like I touched on earlier, you want to make it almost feel like the flies are just in a zero gravity, just barely floating, fluttering their uh, position. But the number one thing is just really, really try to have a good understanding of what your flies are doing when you're when you're presenting them. And pretty much any situation you're presenting them. The dragging piece, I totally get. Yep. The sinking piece, that's interesting. Yep. You're not talking about that first sink, so I cast it in there and it starts sinking. Right. That's sort of like okay. Yeah, it is okay. So I think the, the bigger thing here is when you're when you're urinimping, you're typically fishing pretty heavy flies. You're using tungsten beads, usually using a couple of flies. This fly sink quick, you know, if you're if you're tracking good throughout a drift and all of a sudden your your leader goes flack, those flies are gonna drop fast. They might drag on the bottom in a weird way, they might get caught. And now there's a whole nother topic about inducing motion in your flies, which can help you, but that's not what I'm getting at here right here. I'm just talking about trying to get your flies to where they're feeling like they're in that zero gravity environment and they're just staying still. They're just floating along. Let's talk about inducing motion. Then. Absolutely. <laughs> Let's hit on that just a yeah. minute. So, so what can a intermediate to novice angler learn about that? Give me give me a couple of things that, sure. that somebody might want to hear. So I think it think a lot of times when people first learn to fly fish and nymph, they're usually using indicators, right? And uh you you cast upstream, you mend, you do your drift all the way through. One of the first things you're taught is to let your flies swing at the end. That's two purposes, right? Maybe fish comes up and hit it, it's got that motion, it can induce a strike, look like an emerger. The other parts you're loading your rod. You can do that same thing when you're nymphing. Swinging flies is a great tactic. But one thing you can do while you're in it uh nymphing that you can't do with an indicator is jigging flies. And sometimes what I'll find, if I'm if I'm fishing a river and we've all had days where it's tough, the fish just don't seem to be doing a lot. They're not feeding on anything. Sometimes it does just take a little bit of something extra uh, and just kind of doing some slight motions. And I'm not talking about ripping a jig. You know, you're not fishing for amberjack or anything here. Here. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I'm, right. I'm just talking about kind of kind of slow, slow twitches. You're you're bumping your rod up and down, maybe two to four inches, you know, probably every three or so seconds, just kind of trying to look like a bug slowly starting to make its way up through the water column. And sometimes that that little bit of motion can be a trigger. I mean, think about it when you're streamer fishing, right? One of the biggest parts about streamer fishing, you why you see these big gaudy flies, all this splash, you're you're inducing a reaction with that. Nothing a fish sees in its life looks anything like a bright yellow sex dungeon with a bunch of gold flash off of it. Nothing looks like that. But right. what you're doing is you're doing something that's a little bit outside of the norm. And, you know, it's kind of like you roll a tennis ball by a dog. They might look at it and watch it. You move it by a dog. They're going to go chase it. I, I truly think it's the same thing as that predatory instinct. Similar to a cat. Yeah, yeah. I like to think of a cat. Yeah. A cat in a ball of yarn. Exactly. You know, you start really moving it up Gets and down. Gets excited. 
It's the exact same thing. That could go back even to tarpon fishing as far as that goes. <laughs> and how often is it that just doing something a little different than everyone else helps you? You know, not everyone's jigging their flies. Sometimes it's a little bit different look than the fish normally get. And it's just enough to be a game changer and you might put a few more in the net. Yeah. So one of the things that I'm finding is on like flatter water, and I guess I've been doing it for years and, and really haven't thought much about it, is when you make your mend on a long drift because some currents come in a little funny. And by long drift, I mean 10, 15 feet out of the boat. You make that mend, and the next thing you know, you're getting a yep. hit. It's exactly what you're talking about. It's just a little bit different type. Yep. That's good to know. Yeah, and a lot of times what I like to do is if I'm fishing a run, you know, I'll fish through it dead drifting my flies, you know, until I'm pretty much not getting anything else. And it's kind of sometimes it's just a last-ditch effort to see if you can pull something extra out, and it, it works more often than you think. So are you using an indicator any with yours? Because I know that we've talked to several people that have said, yeah, they're using the indicators. And I've used an indicator before, but not as often on a Euro setup as, as what I do. I think I switch back. Well, yeah, I definitely don't most of the time, but I absolutely do sometimes. You know, the, the reality is that Euro nymphing is not an all-encompassing tactic. You cannot fish every single type of water super or every type of condition super effectively. I mean, out here, we get tons of wind you start getting wind moving through and you're trying to urinate your flies your fly lines blowing all sorts of crazy ways you're not getting a good drift you're not able to tell if you have fish on perfect time to use an indicator other times uh i like to use them you know if i'm fishing flat uh flatter water bigger wider flatter water i like to use them uh mainly because the flies i'm using are pretty heavy and as you start to cast flies further away from you especially in slower water you kind of it kind of gives you uh, your flies a pendulum effect. They'll start swinging back towards you. So while they're going downstream, they're also working their way across current. I just don't think it looks right. Then if I'm fishing small flies, I've gotten pretty into doing some small midge fishing out here. Indicators are a great choice. So I think you, you see a lot of people who who get into euro nymphing and they get really excited. It's a great tactic. It works. They're catching more fish than they've been uh, catching ever before. And they almost stick to it too much. Hmm. It's worth just keeping an open mind, just adapting to whatever the conditions, you know, are like around you. Obviously, you've done that. If we kick this off by talking about streamers and we're talking about indicators, dry flies, dry droppers. I mean, I think you're hitting on all the same things that any fly angler would hit on. But it, it seems out of place from what a lot of folks have been fed mm -hmm. on Euro nymphing. Yep. And really, I don't think it is. I mean, obviously, fly fishing is something that you can just, you can make of it whatever you want. Exactly. Short of throwing a rooster tail on a fly rod, <laughs> you know, which, and some people do that. I'm sure. And what do you do? Okay. Well, that's, that's, that's kind of your way of doing it. Yeah. That's not my way of doing it. But, you know, you catch three or four great big fish in front of me, it'll be my way. Yeah, right. <laughs> So, success can success changes opinions pretty quickly it does exactly you're exactly right um when do i know if i'm getting the wrong drift this is kind of a, a, a out of left field yeah. question but so you know that if, if you can tell that you can't feel you can't feel your flies you don't know where they are or you're hanging up too much if you're hanging up on the bottom too much you're uh you know you're letting the flies sink too much you're not keeping proper tension with it if you're not catching fish <laughs> yeah. other than that uh, but yeah i think you know the biggest thing for me is a lot of times when you're getting the wrong drift people can go a little too slow or like have the rod tip a little too far upstream and it'll cause your flies to sink a lot faster and they'll be dragging you get all sorts of slime all over them you know and i'm talking both flies not you just your fly on bottom I don't see it personally as much where people are, you know, pulling them too fast. It's usually, uh, usually the opposite. I think a lot of times I pull them too slow. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I guess I shouldn't say I pull them too slow. I move too slow. That's probably the better way to put it. I'm not necessarily pulling them or whatever. I'm just like behind them just a tad. Yeah. 
and I can see that in the in the line. Yeah. And you know, and then I wake up and I'm like, okay, I need to move a little more, <laughs> maybe a little quicker. Yeah. You know, to keep up with them, like you're talking. Yeah, about. and it makes it harder to detect a strike too. I mean, you're not you're not getting as much control. You're not your flies probably aren't looking as natural. You're not feeling strikes when they do happen as quickly as you need to. I think one of the the coolest parts about urine nipping is how fast you detect strikes. And it really makes me wonder how many strikes I've missed while, you know, just kind of general indicator fishing, because I mean, there's times where you have a hit and before you know it, that sucker's gone. And the way they hit, you know, you would have never had a moment for that indicator to even flinch. That's exactly right. And uh, I mean, that, that little bit of keeping that proper tension and having that little bit of extra time to react to, it's huge. There are a lot of folks that'll pick up that indicator just like Especially in water, probably like you're fishing, like the Yampa, mm-hmm. in town and up toward the dam as well. Water's a little quicker there, mm-hmm. so they'll mend or or lift up a little, even with an indicator, yep. a little more than, than what somebody on that flatter water would yep. do. I was fishing, and this was, gosh, this was years ago, but we were fishing the elk. And I was fishing out of the back of the boat. A friend of mine was fishing out of the front of the boat, and we were just kind of floating sideways. And he was fishing over, he was, he was fishing my water. That's what was going on. I'll just be honest, which was to me a no, no, but it was still, it was clear water. So I could see, I mean, he threw right in front of me Yeah. and I saw a pod of three or four brook trout out there eating. And this fish was eating. It wasn't moving the indicator, but it was eating. Mm-hmm. And I said, set the hook, set the hook. And he's like, no. Yeah. Cause he thought, he thought I was trying to get him out of his, out of my water, which I really wasn't trying to do. And so I, I guess probably my voice went up a little louder. And I said, set the hook, set the hook. And so he did. He missed the fish. And he said, I, I told you there wasn't nothing on there. I said, throw it back in there. Yeah. So he threw it back in there. And one of those brook trout came out and ate, ate again, did not move his indicator. And I said, set the hook. And he did it then and caught the fish. Yeah. Neither of those fish moved that indicator, yeah. which was so crazy. But it's exactly what you're talking about yeah. is that so many times we depend and rely on the indicator to tell us what's going on. And the fish... They don't care. And sometimes they're coming up from below it yep. and eating up. Yep. And it never really moves it. I mean, it may it may wiggle it just a tad. Yeah. It may not even be enough for, for somebody to realize it. But I was able to see that firsthand that day. And that was that was a big day for me to think that, okay, maybe we're getting a little more action than what we think we are. Well, how many times have you, you know, everyone who's fly fish for a while has done this. How many times do you go to recast and you had a fish on there? Yeah, right. <laughs> yes. Yes. You, you feel like a rock star, you know, look like you know what you're doing, but you're sitting they're thinking to yourself, man, I am a lucky dude at the moment. I had no idea this was happening. But uh, so true, so but true. Another thing that's amazed me, and I think a lot of people who've urinated quite a bit have all seen this. I mean, it really amazes me how how soon into a drift sometimes fish hit. You know, I've had times where you know I cast, and by the time I've even picked my lineup, there's a fish up. I mean, the flies haven't hardly had a second to sink. The fish are just super active. They see something they like, they go grab it. Trout are fast. They have great eyesight. That goes back to what we were talking about earlier at the, on my Yampa experience. Uh, Excursion uh-huh. of throwing on a shelf that was, you know, maybe a foot, two foot deep. And the, the nymph, it could not have sank, sank more than a couple of seconds before a fish ate. And they're hitting real early in a lot of cases. In that case, I know it was when the fly was still falling because there's so much leader mm-hmm. out there, so much tippet and leader out there from the indicator that there's there's no way. So I think you're right. I think they hit a lot quicker in the drift than what they we can. think. Fish do weird stuff. It's not one size fits all. Mm-hmm. That's for sure as far as the eat goes. So let's talk about the the fly since we're kind of on that subject. Sure. I know what's in my fly box, 
you know, the tradi- I'm more probably more of a traditionalist. And, and there's some there's some dirty stuff in there too. Sure. Some eggs and a couple squirmies, maybe. Yeah, yeah, stuff like that. Stuff that I'm not proud of. Maybe a mop or uh, two. But it works. <laughs> yeah, there's some mops in there. There's some white mops. Definitely some white mops, which I don't have as much luck on. I don't so. either. I don't fish mops a whole lot. Yeah, there's. I've got a couple of friends that fish them. Some people love them. Some people catch the crap out of them. Yeah, and I've watched. I'm like, how do you do that? Because I, I mean, I've got them and I fish them. I can fish theirs and. And still not be quite as good as what they are on them, probably. Right. You know, so I don't know if it's I don't know if it's technique or luck or they're putting it in different water than I am. But I mean, they do work. I've seen them work. Yeah. They don't work as well for David, but that doesn't always mean anything <laughs> either. So I'm a little bit more traditional yeah. as far as nymphs and 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 dries go. What about you? And so. Your Euro box. Sure. I mean, does it look like a box of Christmas tree ornaments? Looks like someone opened a jelly bean bag and spilled it. <laughs> yeah, like yeah. What's what's it look like? No, it 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 doesn't look like that. I mean, really, I I'm I keep flies pretty simple. Uh, my biggest thing is just organizing things by size. I uh, I carry four boxes on me. I have a I have a fly, uh, box for. I call it my small nymph and midge box. Then I've got my standard nymph box. I've got my anchor box. And then I've got my junk and small streamer box. Kind of keep it like that. Try to organize things mostly by weight, kind of by fly type a little bit. But I'm honestly not a huge believer in that, you know, the exact fly type you're using makes a huge difference. And obviously... No, hold, hold on. Hold, hold on. Hold on. You're out west where all the good hatches are. That's true. So, you know, I, I was about to back myself out <laughs> of that one a little bit. We're talking a case-by-case basis. You know, you're... If you're fishing a, some, a freestone stream where you've got all sorts of bug life, and yes, there are situations where fish are keyed in on a hatch, and you got to be ready for that. you got to have your split cases, all that kind of stuff, match the hatch. Uh, and I've got that stuff. But 90% of the time, I'm fishing two flies that are probably size 16, size 18, usually something, some sort of pheasant tail variation. The other one, some sort of bluing olive-ish quill nymph variation. There's some waltz worms in there. I mean, look at a waltz worm. You know how many people catch a ton of fish on those, and all it is is hairs you're dumping around a hook sometimes with some flash around it yeah. freaking great fly you know but it's it's simple well and i think a lot of times especially in freestone streams i mean i just i really don't think you have to have perfect matches now i'm sure there's someone out there watching going like or listening saying man i can only catch fish on just the most crazy specifically tied nymph for this kind of bug here and there but in my experience is my in my experience if you're fishing a good size fly a size fly that mimics most of the bugs in the water You've got good weight on it. You've got the right kind of color scheme. You're, you're golden for the most part. I really like, especially starting out the day, like fishing uh, one fly that's a little more drab, one with, with a little more flash, see what the fish are feeling, and then kind of going from there. And then bead size. Fish a lot of, or not bead size, bead color. Fish a lot of different bead colors. I do vary things up a little bit there. I, I really like black for some pressured water, like silver on cloudy days, golden copper on sunny days. Throw some pinks and reds in there. Get fun with it. You know, I've got purple. <laughs> let's let's talk about that black. Let's back yeah. up a minute. Out there, pressured water is we've seen a couple people a day, two or three people a day. Yeah. Here, pressured water is I see 20 or 30 sure. people a day. So it's a little different. Uh-huh. Uh, but you were talking about fishing black beans. Mm-hmm. How'd you get turned on to that? I just think they're more natural. It's the exact same situation like what you're talking about. When you've got places that are fished more heavily, I think that if you have something that's reflecting a lot less light, it makes the fish a little uh, less weary of it. Because as, as fish get caught over and over, I'm sure they catch on to the fact that every time they bite something shiny, they 
get yanked out of the water, can't breathe for a minute, you know, get called up to the UFO. (laughs) Not a great experience, but yeah, I just, I think having something that gives the fish one less thing to reject is it, it, it works in your favor at times. Are you on the cloudy day, a little less flash, sunny day, a little more flash? Yeah, I I think so. I I think I do find my way that way. I do kind of like drab or flies. I think a darker contrast on a darker day works well. Because I mean, you got to think. I, re- I remember floating down the Tacoa River once, look, you know, releasing a fish, looking in the water, and you know, it was there was a great hatch going off, and I, I could see I could see some bugs in the water emerging, and you see that bubble forming on their back, and it's a sunny day, and it's amazing how much light catches that on a right. cloudy day. That's not happening, you know. So if you're fishing something that looks like the sunshine moving through a river on a cloudy day, you know, pressured fish are gonna be sitting there going like, well, that, that doesn't look right. Now, obviously, there's some light going through, and I think silver gives off kind of the, the right color flash a little more if you want something flashy. I mm-hmm. think adjusting your flies to light conditions, you know, can be a real difference maker. Yeah, I agree with that. I don't know that I do that all that often. I will vary the fly type uh, with maybe a little bit more, a little bit less flash, but kind of keep the same profile. Yeah keep the same size and i just pick through the fly box till i find one that okay this is a little better but i don't get off of the i don't necessarily get off of the bead onto a black like from a silver to a black or anything like that but i will go from one's a little more flashier than the other yeah i will do that yeah and yeah you can go as crazy with that as you want you know i'm not saying i don't fish a gold bead on a cloudy day here and there sometimes i do and it freaking works yeah right (laughs) i just think in in general i've kind of found that you know and it's almost a confidence within myself that i've realized hey you know it's cloudy out silver beads work really well for me a lot of times in the past let's let's keep that momentum rolling you know and your friend might say i never do that yeah exactly they might catch more than me that day <laughs> he might he may not or she she might she may not i mean you just don't ever know who's going to catch what yeah. it's, it, it could come down to they're getting a little bit better better presentation that particular day than than i am or you are yep so let's talk about travel just a minute. We'll try to wrap this up here in just a minute. Travel out there, you read, you hear so much about, like I just said, you know, you're out there with all the hatches, yep. right? You got to be a little bit more precise yep. with, with what you're throwing. And then you bring up a waltz worm. When I think waltz worm, I think something that goes to the bottom immediately because yep. there's no, there's nothing out there to stop it. No drag. The only thing that stops is the fish picking it up on the way down. <laughs> yeah, right, right. <laughs> Which we just talked about. Exactly. Exactly. But I think as we get ready to travel, well, I can go back to to my first trip out there. I got a list of flies that I heard worked and read on the internet. And then David told me, hey, you need some of these. But I went further and said, all right, what hatches are on these particular rivers and blah, 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 blah. And then I'll be darned if I didn't end up fishing pretty much a lot of the same things that I fish here. A parachute Adams is going to work about anywhere. I don't know what it is about that fly, but it works. Absolutely. A zebra midge is going to work just about anywhere that there's a midge you know in your fly box you may have dozens of flies and they're all kind of in that i'm talking about for my western fly box if i'm building one of those somebody out there is getting ready to go out west right this year is their year and here you are saying more traditional flies maybe i don't have to have something that is the exact hatch you know it has to be a size 18 bwo on a cloudy day you know, and the temperature needs to be between 60 and <laughs> sixty and 72. You're standing on one foot and all this crazy stuff. <laughs> it almost goes back to that golf show. I can't remember that golf movie. Uh, 
is it Happy Gilmore? I can't yeah. remember which one it is. To where you know the dude's like put the put the change in your left pocket versus your right pocket, or however yeah. that went. You know, there's a Happy Gilmore fan out there that's just losing their mind right now. But whatever that was that they said, it's not necessarily that way, is it? No, and you know, so I think what people have to do is set the proper expectation in their mind too. You know, you come out here, you can mm. you can get into insane, crazy hatches where yeah, you do need to have the right fly. Those fish are zoned in on one thing. That's the great part about out here is we got tons of fly shops out here that, you know, if there's a hatch going off, they've got the right fly. But I think the reality of it is in most rivers, 90% of the time, your general attractors are going to fish great. Those times where those, those hatches are just absolutely insane, magical, and the fish are just picking up one thing. Those are kind of, those are far and few between, really. Let's switch gears just a second here. Let's switch over to where you like to fish. Okay. Give me three streams that you really, really like out there. All right. They don't have to be your favorites because I don't want you to give your favorites <laughs> and then, you know, have 20 people standing in your hole. Which isn't going to happen, yeah. but you know what I'm saying. Yeah, okay, all right. So three favorites for me. Number number one for me is the Eagle. Eagle is a great place. I think there you have so much variety just in the kind of water you can fish. I mean, about, well, all within about a 30-minute drive up or down the river. I mean, there's there's areas where you've got these giant boulders and, you know, pocket water. And then you've got areas where it's more pebbly, more wide open, kind of meandering through a meadow stream. Great bug action, great hatches, great fish, good size fish, healthy fish. Now, there, I, I think some of the most beautiful wild rainbows I've ever caught have come out of there. I mean, they, you just get these guys that are just rosy red and it's just gorgeous, you know. It's kind of funny, but back when I lived in the southeast, and I'm still a brown trout guy, don't get me wrong. But, uh, you know, I'd go fish wild streams. You, you catch rainbows all day. And it was such a gift to catch a brown trout. You know, out here, there's you have really great brown trout populations. And I know in some of these streams years back, uh, whirling disease killed off a lot of rainbows. But, man, you catch a real nice wild rainbow out here. And it's just like, it'll, it'll take your breath away. Thing number two for me is I really like the Colorado. You've got, you've got like 100 miles. You've got 100, literally hundreds of miles of it you can fish. You can fish the upper part where it's the smaller stream up in Rocky Mountain National Park. Fish the lower part below Glenwood Springs where you're talking a wide river that you can't even think about wading across when it's at its lowest point in the winter. I mean, big river. I haven't been that far down it. Oh, I, it's a it's a good spot down there. Great spot to float. Not not treacherous to row through anything. No real big rapids. Great fish. It, it's a cool spot. And then uh, number three, and we were talking about the Yampa earlier. Yampa's cool. There's a good fish in the Yampa. You've got the stagecoach tailwater, which is a fun tailwater fishery. You know, if you haven't experienced a true Western tailwater, it's a great spot to do it. Cut your teeth in on it. Fish are tough, but there's lots of them. Great bug yeah. life there. And then you can work your way down through the free stone, stone spar, uh, parts. You can get some big browns, rainbows. There's pike thrown in there here and there sometimes. I've caught a couple pike out of it. Cool spot. But uh, I think everyone's favorite season out here is summer. And I'm telling you, the most fun to me out here is hiking the high mountain lakes and finding cutthroats. I mean, that's that's the coolest thing. When you're fishing places that are unthawed two, three months out of the year, that's special. And they're aggressive. They're aggressive. They? And there's some spots where they're big, too. Oh, really? Yeah, there's there's some lakes out here. And I, the key that I found is if you find lakes that have got a, a good scud population, you'll get big cutthroats. Some of these high mountain lakes have really good scud populations. Something else you don't hear every day is that that little nugget right there. Yeah, most people go to those lakes thinking, thinking they need to be throwing hoppers or whatnot of these things. But you drop a little scud below it, game on. <laughs> Good information right there. So I guess my favorite, uh, we'll go to my favorite. So Yampa's one for, number one for me, and I think I told you that earlier. Probably one of the best days I've had fishing as far as fishing was great, scenery was great, wildlife was off the charts, lost a huge fish uh, that actually broke the line, broke the tippet. 
Uh, and I'm not talking about 6X either. I'm talking about real the real deal. <laughs> Run off by a thunderstorm and got eat up by mosquitoes. That's the Western experience. It is, isn't it? And I had that true Western experience, and I thought it was it was fantastic. I guess the second, probably my second favorite, oh, I would say it's a Taylor. Yeah, Taylor's cool. Yeah, it's cool because, you know, you see all the, I mean, you got 20-inch fish swimming around your feet. So that would be my probably my one of my next top three. And then the Colorado, you were talking about from high up in the Rocky Mountain National Park. We drove from, from the Taylor to whichever plat that was that we fished down there. Then we drove up into the into the Grand uh Grand Lake. Grand Lake, yeah. Drove in that side. Drove in the Grand Lake side and fished the Colorado there somewhere. Stepped out of the car, threw about ten casts and caught a brook trout, which was pretty cool. Yeah. Actually, it was real cool. We were inside the park. Messed around, watched some a moose, a couple moose, got back in the car and drove off. Then a couple of years later, went back and fished, uh, I guess probably I fished it a couple of times from like Twin Bridges to State Bridge yeah. or State Bridge to Twin Bridges. I can't remember which one that is. Did that. I like that section. But then we fished Rancho. Rancho Del Rio. Yeah, down to... Twin bridges or two bridges, whatever. Yeah, I that can't is. remember what they are. That was a pretty long float, but that was a that was a day where we caught them on drives, nymphs, soft hackles, whatever, ants. Just, I mean, it was just one of those days, and it wasn't it wasn't like we caught a bunch of fish, but we caught them on everything. Yeah, except for probably streamers. I don't think we fished streamers that day. So those are kind of my three. Yeah. my my big three. I've never done the eagle, which I would like to do. Uh, so I may come back out there, and if you're out there, I'll do the eagle. I'd show you around. So, wow, Garrett, we've been, dang gum, we've been down the road here for, I don't know how long it's been. It's been a little while. It's probably been an hour or more. So, we covered your streamer setup yep. right off the bat, your rod setup, ergonomics, presentation, your fly box, your favorite rivers. And I think we got pretty in-depth about most all of that stuff, honestly. Uh, I'm, I'm sure there's something somebody can learn. There's going to be some things that people think they already know or they do already know, but there's there's some nuggets in there too, which is, is really what we dig for yep. on this show. I want to thank everybody for coming in, listening to Southeastern Fly. Again, you can find us at uh, southeasternfly.com. Uh, we're a guide service and we're a podcast and we're, we're really looking to help people learn more about fly fishing and get better. We want every client to be a better angler. That's really kind of what we're about here. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, podcast by Southeastern Fly. It's our Facebook group. And that's where a lot of our questions, a whole lot of our questions come from. And that's where we kind of get our, our groove on this is from the folks that really participate in that. And, and they, they ask me questions on the side. And then some of that comes from clients. Some of that comes from, from friends. A lot of those questions come from a lot of different places. So I think that podcast group is probably our nucleus of, of anglers that really want to get better and they really want to drive where this podcast goes again our guest is garrett gresham competition angler 2013 finished second in the national fly fishing championships in basalt uh, atlanta boy so that's kind of our connection yep. to uh, southeastern fly there living in colorado living the dream a lot of folks think they want to live out there and from what you've been telling me it's a it's a great place to be garrett i really appreciate you stopping by and and being willing to giving give up good and useful information absolutely happy to it, and it's good to see you again as always and and i keep up with you on instagram I think it's Garrett Gresham on Instagram. Yep. Is that right? What it, What is it on it? I think it's maybe Garrett underscore, underscore Gresham one. Well, like I said, I appreciate you stopping by and I appreciate everybody listening on Southeastern Fly. See you next time. Thanks, David. Thanks, man.
we probably need to talk about uh, some of your saltwater stuff on the at some point. You know it. That's a whole other can of worms, man. That's a fun one too. I wish I was an expert, but I know enough to help people catch a couple fish. Yeah, I need to go down there and visit your dad. He he, he for a long time kept saying, "Why don't you come down?" And then I think he just said, "David's not coming down." But. <laughs> It's just, it's tough for me to find time to stop and go, you know, when I'm not going with a family. How are you this this afternoon, this evening? Is it, I guess it's evening there already. Yeah, not bad, man. It's cold here. It's dumping snow outside my apartment right now. What? Yeah, it's crazy. Uh, A friend of mine's grandfather and grandmother used to have hogs uh, close to where we lived. And they went to the bakery and got a whole pickup bed of Twinkies. A whole pickup, four by eight. That's an absurd amount of Twinkies. Diabetes in a truck. Yeah, so we went up there one evening when they bought it. They bought it during the day. When we got off of school, we went up there. And our job was to open them and just throw them in the, in the pig pen. Sure. Because they were all out of date. Uh-huh. You know, not by much, but they're, they're out of date. But, man, I've never ate so many Twinkies <laughs> in my life. Oh, they were so good. Oh, man. I still love them, but, man, that day they were... I, I was like 12 or 13 years old, so it wasn't as quite as big a deal then as it would be now. 